and welcome to the Meeple in a GameStack podcast. A podcast all about board games, whether it's getting into them, getting the most out of them, or just having a good time. This is podcast number six, and as ever, I am your host, Mitch Brown. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about some games I've been playing recently, followed by the topic of the day, which is finding people to play games with and getting to play games. And finally, the feature game of this podcast will be Skull. All right, so first off with what I've been playing recently, and I'm going to take my time here and really say the title of this game correctly because I absolutely say just a jumble of words that are all contained in the title each time I refer to it. The game I've been playing recently, and this game is Betrayal at House on the Hill. Not Haunting on the Hill or House on the Hill, Betrayal in the House on the Hill. It is Betrayal at House on the Hill, designed by Bruce Glasgow. Published by Hasbro, Wizards of the Coast, and Avalon Hill Games, Inc. So previous listeners will know that this is actually my fiancé's favorite game, and uh, after the last podcast, we had both agreed that we hadn't played it enough recently, so we gave it a go at a recent games night. For those of you who don't know, Betrayal at House on the Hill is a game where you are young people exploring a haunted house on a hill. The stereotypical exploring the haunted house scenario and you take turns searching the rooms, which are tiles from a randomized deck, searching the floors and picking up items, and trying not to trigger omens, because once you've found enough rooms and enough items, someone will fail the omens test, and then the game switches into the other half. That person generally, at least in our house, will leave the room, they consult their little book, and they become the traitor. And depending on where they triggered the omen, where they are, and with what item determines the scenario that starts. So they go with their little booklet, depending on the scenario number, they'll read what their new objective is as a trader. And it's generally to either eat or kill or trap all of the other players, and it suddenly becomes a 1v3, or whatever amount of players you're playing with. And the others all have to, they consult their scenario book and find out what their new objective is, which is either to escape, survive, or conduct a ritual to trap an evil spirit or something. And each time this is randomized, which leads to a huge amount of replayability, so I have yet to have two scenarios that actually have been the same. It's endlessly replayable, and it's a lot of fun. It's pretty fun to have someone be the traitor to be the traitor and to try to thwart them as a team while also trying to keep your speaking covert enough that they don't know exactly what you're up to while you're all sitting at the same table. It is good. Our last time was a great time. Unfortunately, my character didn't make it. I was an old man and I, (laughs) I died on a bench and promptly had my brain pickled by an alien. Not to give too much away, but... Uh, it was an unfortunate end to my character, but the game was certainly not unfortunate. It was a good time. And while it is not the most sophisticated or intricate design in the world, it is a lot of fun and just a fun, sort of goofy monster movie. All right, and next off, after that game from, I think, 2004, 2005... The next game I'm going to talk about is a much more recent game coming out in 2019, I believe, and that is Tiny Towns, designed by Peter McPherson and published by AEG, Alderac Entertainment Group. And after that very spooky game, Tiny Towns is a very more pleasant experience. 
what it is, is you are suddenly the creator of your own tiny town, and you are given an individual playboard, which is a 4 by 4 grid in which to build your town. And each round you will receive resources, which you have to lay out in a certain pattern to build buildings there. And all of these buildings have special effects with how they score points, or how they block points, how they interact with other buildings. And the tough part is, you can't have any resources be in the same space as a building, and you have to fit all of this within that 4x4 four four grid. So your first, maybe half or a third of the game, it's great! You've got all the options in the world, oh, I don't need that resource now, I can just put it over here for later, that's fine. But once you've built a few buildings, you realize that rapidly your 4x4 four four grid cannot hold a whole hell of a lot, and soon planning out these buildings becomes much more of a puzzle. And that is kind of the game. It's a pretty simple game, but it's a lot of fun, and I quite enjoyed this last time playing it. And this time we actually tried a, a variant of it. So in the regular game, you take turns and you call out your resource that you want, maybe brick, and then everyone has to take a brick. And then it goes around in a circle, the next person might need glass, or wheat, or more bricks, or rock, and you just kind of get what you're given based off the other players. But this leads to, if you know someone beside you only has one space and you can really get them, you can just call, maybe brick has been called three times in a row and they're running out of space, you can just call brick again if you can take it and they can't, you know that you can kind of mess the other people up at the table. But the variant that we played was with a deck of cards. That actually comes with the base game, and you actually just draw cards, and that's the resource that you get. It's just randomized from this deck of cards. And I actually found that I think this might be the superior way to play this game. Playing this way with the cards removes the kind of, I guess, bitey trying to trying to screw over your neighbor that exists within the base game, and without that almost spiteful competitiveness, it actually is just a much, much nicer and pleasant little puzzle game. I mean, technically, with the deck of cards just distributing the resources, it kind of turns it into a roll-and-write game, which is fine, and actually, I really enjoyed the game more so this way than with the regular rules, and in the future, I think I will just keep this variant going to have the resources be randomized, because then it's more, there's less luck and there's less more biting competitiveness, which I, at least personally, I find frustrating with this game, since the main game of it is just a puzzle. It's literally a four by four block puzzle that you're trying to fit these tetronomos, or I guess technically they're not tetronomos because they can't have one or two. Everybody loves a well because it's just one block, and you, so you can literally make well town the most hydrated place in the world. Um, but yeah, it just removes that part of the game and leaves it as a really satisfying puzzle to tackle yourself. Yeah, without that other mechanic getting in the way, or without any of the other players getting in the way. And maybe that's just me, maybe people love it as a more competitive thing, but yeah, we had a great time and we played with the variant, so I would highly recommend trying that out. And also, I would recommend trying it out even if you maybe didn't enjoy the base experience of Tiny Towns. I would give it another shot with this variant, because it is very much a totally different beast with it, and one that I quite liked. So you'll probably hear more about Tiny Towns in the future. Alright, and that'll move us on to today's topic, which is finding people to play board games with. And this is absolutely a, I guess, beginner or fundamental topic to board gaming as a hobby, 
While we did have solo week last week, and you can absolutely play and really enjoy board games that way, I think board gaming truly shines as a multiplayer and social experience. But that leaves us with the heavy asterisk of you have to find a bunch of people to play these board games with to really enjoy them. And that can leave this as a bit of a uniquely frustrating hobby. You can get a new game that you're super excited about. <laughs> totally not speaking from experience here, but you can get a new game that you're super excited about and then not get to play it. Maybe for months, maybe for years. One of the games I'm going to talk about next week that I just just had a recent play of, I hadn't played for probably a year, and it was on my, you know, shape up or ship out shelf. And it's last chance, and we gave it a play, and it was an awesome, awesome time, and has cemented itself back into my collection with a vengeance. And that leaves us with our topic today, and what... I guess the main problem that faces people who are new to board gaming, apart from, you know, finding the right ones, which can certainly be harder than finding a meeple in a game stack. So let's, let's approach our avenues for converting people to this wonderful hobby of ours, <laughs> which I guess sounds a little sinister, but you're just trying to have fun with them. So, <laughs> you know, it's not as bad as it sounds. And the first route I think that most people go to is converting friends and family. You know, trying to get friends and family into it. And hey, maybe you're really lucky and your friends are already getting you into it. Perfect. Go with them. Board games are fun. <laughs> uh, you probably don't need to hear me tell you that. But if you haven't, yeah, they're great. Board games. Hell of a thing. <laughs> so maybe you're lucky enough that you have friends who are already into board gaming and hey, you're in. But also likely is that your, fr your friends aren't into board games. Well, then one avenue for you is to try to get them into it. And that's where a lot of, I find, light games, party games work really well to bridge the gap into board gaming. But that's not always the case. There's a lot of really great games that can be approached just as, uh, you know, medium weight or even heavy board game itself and just getting into it that way. And I'll have my two main pieces of advice for doing so at the end of this little segment. But that is certainly one avenue is trying to convince your friends to, you know, play games with you. And I find this works really well if you already are part of an RPG group, a tabletop RPG group, or if you maybe even just play video games a lot with a group of friends. I find that those two are great bridges. If you're already doing that, it's not too hard to convince people to, you know, play a different type of game. An analog game, if you will, instead of these video games. Uh, the next route people would take maybe is... Con well, not everybody, but most people would take is Converting Family. A great party game can make a you know great addition to any family event or family dinner. <laughs> the learning curve with some of your older relatives can certainly be more daunting, but a lot of these, that's up to you to find these really great... These really great and really simple and really efficiently fun games. And if you can find those and lead with those, you can absolutely, you know, convince people to <laughs> play board games with you. If you can show them that it is fun, the faster you can do that, the faster they'll want to play more board games with you. But if you find yourself, maybe you're in a new city, or you just don't have, you know, have a lot of these people living by you or near enough to you for convenience sake, I would recommend looking at local groups. A good piece of advice, actually, even locally here, but I think in quite a few places, is 
board game cafes are great for this, but also uh, libraries, public libraries often have board gaming nights or board gaming groups. And I understand I'm absolutely in this boat and have been recently in that it's not always the easiest to try to put yourself out there and approach a, you know, brand new group of people, especially because most of the time you're joining a already established group and a group of friends, and that is not always the, well, easiest situation. Oftentimes, people who are into these, into these here board games are a little more introverted and it can be hard to push yourself out of your comfort zone to try to meet these people. But even myself in the last, uh, I mean, maybe not in 2020, because lockdown has been great for all these public meetings, but uh, maybe for six months before that, I actually found a local gaming group and had been meeting with them every other week for quite a few months, and it was actually good. I made some new friends and enjoyed my time with it. And would absolutely recommend it for people. It's not easy, but it's absolutely worth doing, and it's really rewarding when you get to, well, f you know, first off, play board games, but secondly, make new friends and meet new people. It's great. Would recommend. And lastly, if you don't have option A or option B at all available, there is, like we, like many do in this year, 2020, the third option, of course, is playing board games online. There are multitude ways to do this. You got Tabletop Simulator, Tabletopia, there's various sites, and there's many, many websites to find groups of these people on, or depending on the game, they might even have like their own servers for it. Root is a great example of a the app version of the game just came out. The implementation is great. It looks really, really good. You can absolutely join board gaming through video gaming, or at least through online play, and it can be a lot of fun. One thing I would recommend if you're looking for online, I would actually find, I'd go and try to find your favorite board game media people, whether that's podcasts or videos or news channels. Most of them have forums or discords or basically communities where you can find people who are up for playing board games and organize through there. And then I also find that the sense of community within that is a lot more and it's a lot easier to join. People are a lot more friendly in these smaller circles as opposed to the whole vast ocean that is the internet. And oftentimes, because you have a shared interest in whatever board game media source that you're into, it leads to a lot of camaraderie and at least you have a talking point to kind of introduce yourself to people with. And I find that's actually a huge resource for finding either local or online places to play and communities to join. And I very much look forward to building the one around this podcast. So please reach out if you have any questions or just things you want to talk about or things that you want to show me. I'm on Twitter at MeepleGameStack or just send me an email at MeepleInAGameStack at gmail.com. And finally, my two major, major pieces of advice for anyone who is looking to get people into board games, to start a board gaming group, to just find more people to play board games with, the two hugest pieces of advice that I have for you, and these are absolutely based on my own personal experience, and I didn't do them great at the beginning. So this is absolutely something that can benefit you if you're in that position. And the two, two things you need to do is, first of all, be patient. This is not like other hobbies. You won't get the 
I mean, unless you're, you've got some awesome roommates and you're all friends, it's pretty tough to have the instant, okay, let's play this new thing I just got, like it is in other hobbies. And this hobby absolutely requires patience. Even if you can manage to get together at games night and you have the hot new one that you want to play, you might not even get to it. You might not have time. Maybe no one is interested in it and you will have to wait more weeks or even more months to play it. And that is fine. It's not going anywhere. And you just have to be patient. It is often very tough, but if you are too pushy or if you are too insistent about playing the game that you want or, you know, having the night or getting to the experiences that you want or try to force that experience, it won't work and it'll actually turn people off and might even turn people off of board gaming in general, which is, you know, which is pretty toxic if you're trying to convince people to play games or trying to start a board gaming group. So that leads me to my second piece of advice, which is flexibility. You have to be willing to play whatever game the group wants to play and have a good time doing it. And yeah, be willing to roll with the punches. If someone shows up with a game that they really want to play and it gets everybody else's attention, hey, don't yeah, don't spoil that for them. Join in, have fun, and you'll get to the games that you want to play later. And even if you are just at a group and it's maybe even it's the family dinner scenario, if you keep suggesting board games and no one else really seems into it, you will absolutely just push people away from playing games with you. And it can take a lot of time before people will kind of recover from that. So it is much better to just be more patient and more flexible. And I find the golden rule is if they if they ask you about the board games, you can bring them, put them somewhere. If they ask you about them, of course, tell them about them. Say that it'd probably be a good time. And then if they still show interest after that, you're in. You're good. Green light to introduce them to board games and have that experience and that good time and show them why you're so interested in it. But yeah, it's super important to be both flexible and patient when you're trying to get people to play board games with you. And this is absolutely something that I had to learn personally. I, when I first started, I was too pushy with it. I'd want to, like, anytime there was a lull in the conversation in one of the first friend hangout nights, whatever it was, whatever you'd call a social gathering, if you will. I was just a bit too insistent on playing board games or playing the board games that I had brought with me, and it absolutely turned people off. And it kind of turned it into an in-joke for a while, which sucked. But I just was patient enough until they're like, okay, fine, let's try out this thing that you really want to do. And now we can bust out board games and they have a good time, and now they're actually requesting that I bring board games or they're trying to organize nights. The thing is, board games are really fun. So as long as you are patient and flexible and try to, you know, hit your target audience, whether it's light games or heavy games or whatever, board games are really fun. So it is a kind of a product that sells itself. If you can have fun with people, they will want to continue having fun with you. So take heart, people who are just getting into this hobby. You're in the hardest part of this hobby, and that's just trying to find players. And that's what I have to say on getting people to play board games with you, or finding board gaming groups. And lastly, we have the feature game for this podcast, and I think this one ties in great with the topic of getting people to play board games, because this is an excellent, excellent gateway game, or a game to get people into board gaming with you. If you are interested in gateway games, it's one of the first topics I covered 
on a previous podcast, so please go check that out. I have a whole give a whole list of gateway games that you can certainly try to convert people into this hobby with. But the game we're going to be talking about today is Skull by Hervé Morley and published by Louis Mem. And what this game is, is super simple. It originally was called Skull and Roses, so you might be able to find older versions <laughs> called that. It is a super simple game of bluffing. Every player gets four coasters. On three of the coasters are roses, or flowers of some sort, and on one of them is a skull. To start the game, every player will covertly place a coaster face down in front of them. Uh, once everyone has done this, it returns to the first player who has the option of either placing another coaster down, also face down with no one else knowing what's on the bottom, or calling out a challenge. And that challenge is betting the other players that they can flip over a certain amount of coasters and on it those will have flowers. You cannot bet how many skulls you want to flip over, because if you flip over a skull, you've lost that challenge. And you actually have to lose one of your at random one of your coasters, which goes into the middle and no one knows what it is. Once you have issued a challenge, for example, I bet I can flip over three flowers or three roses. Everyone else at the table, or in turn, depending on how you play, I like the variant where everyone can call a challenge or issue a new challenge at any time. Once that's done, people have the chance to either up you or call you. And if everyone calls, then you have to do it. You have to flip over three coasters at random, starting with your own, which is a key rule, and you have to flip over three. If you can get all three, you are you have one point and you're halfway to victory. If you can do that twice, you win the game. But the tough part is, if you issue a challenge, since you have to flip your own coaster first, that signals to the other players that you probably put down a flower. Because, of course, you wouldn't want to screw yourself over, would you? Or would you? And that's the big catch of this game, is that one of the main plays that you can do is put down a skull and issue a challenge, and people will then assume that you have a flower. So that's the bluffing game, is am I trying to just mess you up, or am I actually trying to score points here? And of course, there's the tough part of the rising challenge. If you want to call someone and not just call their bluff, if you think that they've said three flowers and you're pretty confident that enough of the players have put down flowers that that's going to be very doable, you have to raise them or just wait to see if they can do it. And okay, then maybe you raise them, and someone else then has the dilemma of do they raise you if they think you can do it, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of the biting point of the game, is trying to find that sweet spot of my bet is doable, but I'm also calling, I'm stopping someone else. And then if someone else tries to up me, then they won't be able to do that. So it's finding the exact amount of flowers that someone can flip over as well as reading people's bluffs and trying to read people. So that is Skull, and that is the description of the game, and it's kind of... And that's kind of the big problem with this game, is that description does not sound at all what this game plays like. The actual play experience of it is thrilling. It's very tense. You're trying to read people's bluffs while also trying to lie covertly to your friends. And I find the emotional highs and lows of this game... Are, are great. Are, it's a roller coaster and usually a raucous time. But the biggest problem I'd say with this game is that you give that rules description and it kind of, it doesn't click for people until they've played a few rounds. It doesn't sink in. The gears don't line up. 
and getting past that hump can be kind of tough, but I still absolutely recommend this as a gateway game because you can coax people over that, and once they do, it's great. It's just, this is probably, I mean, apart from maybe a couple other games, I think the smallest package with the most fun in it among board games. Skull is a tremendous, excellent game, and I would highly recommend it whether you're trying to get people into board gaming, just starting board gaming, or you've been board gaming for ages, it's a great one. Modern classic. And I think it should absolutely be way more well-known than it is. So this leaves you with kind of the... You have to coax people over this bit of a hump into it, and then you'll have a great time. But how do you do that? For me personally, you of course have to give a good rules description, try to, you know try to really let everyone know the ins and outs of the game, make sure that you let everyone know that flipping over skulls is not what you're trying to do, and it's bad. And for my part, I definitely will basically... I mean, for myself, the way that I find is the best way to teach this is to basically throw the game for yourself. You have to show people what is going to happen. So that first round, you have to make the first bet, probably, and maybe even do it too high than you think. Maybe, and then if people probably won't call you. So, of course, if you were really, like, cutthroatly trying to win, you could probably place a bet that's pretty close to what it is and is doable and no one will call you on it and you can get a point. But that is not why we're here and you need to get them having fun so that you can keep doing this. So, of course, maybe throw out an outlandish, like, an outlandishly large bet for your first or challenge for your first turn, and everyone can see what happens and what you have to do, as well as the delicious bit of tension as after you've flipped your own and you have to look around the table to try to read people's poker faces to find out who has flowers. But I find if you lead by example and kind of go through the motions yourself, especially if you don't do it well, and people can, they'll start to pick up on how you didn't do well, and that really lends itself to letting people learn the game. So yes, you're not going to win, but you're going to have way more fun overall, and I'd highly recommend kind of leading by example, even if it's just making yourself lose in a very demonstrative way, I guess. Yeah, this game is great. It passes the parents' test. Both of my parents have had a good time with it. My friends and I have had a great time with it. It's a really great game and a really simple one, too. Even if you didn't have the beautifully printed set by Louis Mem. You could honestly, if you remembered this well enough, you could just draw skulls and roses on coasters and play it in a bar. It's a great game, easy to pick up, and is a great time. And yeah, that is our feature game of the week, Skull, one I highly recommend and ranks very highly on my own personal favorite board games list. And that's going to do it for our podcast. Once again, big thank you to the artist Grumpy Snorlax for the use of their song Cerulean as our intro and outro music. And if you have any questions or any concerns or any opinions, or even if you yourself have experience with this and have some tips that I might have missed for new board gamers, please reach out to me. I want to hear from you. I'm on Twitter at MeepleGameStack. Couldn't fit the inna in there, so it's just MeepleGameStack on Twitter. I'm Meeple in a game stack at gmail.com. Send me an email. Send me a tweet. Let me know if there's anything that I missed or if you have any questions. And if you can, if you have had a good time listening to this or enjoyed this podcast, 
please rate us five stars on whatever platform that you use for listening to this podcast. Please give a rating. It really supports the show. And I just want to keep growing this community and this podcast. So I would really appreciate it. Even if you don't want to do that, I do just really appreciate you listening. So thanks so much for listening. Goodbye.